John Moe Teeny Podcast. My friend Eric from junior high. You know him as Bigfoot. I know him as Eric, and I went to junior high with him. It was a couple months into seventh grade when Eric transferred in. It was still the first year of junior high, but it was far enough into the year that the social order was starting to gel. Jocks at the top, of course, the extroverted jocks especially, the kids who had won the coordination lottery and the growth spurt derby, and also had the necessary moxie to flaunt their gifts. Some of them wore half t-shirts, which incredibly was the fashion of the day. Below the extroverted jocks were the basic jocks, and they all hung together. It was a symbiotic relationship. The basic jocks gained status and a sense of purpose. The extroverted jocks had numbers and a constituency. And they all gained friendship, too, I suppose. I never thought of these guys alongside a tender emotional construct like friendship. But looking back, of course that was the case. I bet they hug at the end of the class reunions I never attend that are always held in the back room of a sports bar. After the two types of jocks were the accelerated kids, the academic achievers, there were quite a few of them, usually from the richer families over on the hill, who could afford the extra tutors and classes to make sure the kids were seen as special. Gifted, they were called by the school. The rest of us called them gifted as well, but kind of sarcastically, and in reference to all the gifts they seemed to receive, like the most expensive basketball shoes, the most popular jeans, the trips to Mexico at spring break. They got a lot of gifts. They kept with each other, these gifted kids, although a few of them were actually pretty nice. Just below them, but on the opposite side of the spectrum, were the headbangers, the heavy metal kids, leather vests, spiked leather wristbands, concert shirts from Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, ACDC. The bootleg shirts were considered more prestigious. The bootleg t-shirts from really obscure metal bands were considered more prestigious still. Ryan Cornwell had a shirt for the Spanish metal band Baron Rojo. No one even asked him if he had seen them in concert. No one had heard any Baron Rojo songs. Didn't matter, he had done enough. Maybe he knew where to order it through the mail. Already impressive. The girls had big hair. Some of the guys did too, actually. Leather pants made the occasional appearance on both, as did eye makeup. Then there were band geeks, art fags. Sorry, that's what we called them, just reporting here. A small cadre of Mexican kids who stuck together, and an even smaller cadre of Vietnamese kids who stuck together, and the occasional other pod of like-minded people who somehow found their tribes. Those tribes afforded at least a dollop of status for all of them. And then there were kids like me. I didn't belong to any group at all. I had a few sort of friends, guys whose houses I'd been to a couple times, guys I'd ridden bikes with once or twice in the summer. I had only moved to town at the beginning of sixth grade, and a lot of these kids had been together since preschool, so it was pretty hard to break through into any kind of friendship circles. I doubted, actually, that such membership would ever really happen for me. And so in this junior high, I just tried to get by, go to my classes, not make waves, not get noticed, have an okay time, and hope for the best down the road. Even the term junior high indicates that it's something too young to be important. Middle school is the same deal. You're not at the beginning of something, and you're not at the end. You're just in the middle. And then Eric. Eric happened. Eric, and I think this is the right way to describe it, 
took place. Late October, a Monday, I walked into first period language arts, just like always, and I saw this guy sitting off to the side, over by our teacher, Mr. Gabriel's desk. And the first thing he noticed about Eric, not surprisingly, was his size. Not his weight so much, at least not back then, but his height for sure. He was at least 6'10". Might have been taller. When you're that young and someone is that tall, you really have no sense of perspective. He might have been over seven feet tall. He was tall enough to be always noticed for it and carried himself like someone who knew everyone noticed, even if they acted like they had not. I had been to a couple of Seattle Supersonics games where we sat on the main floor and I could not believe people could even be that tall. Same with Eric, even folded as he was in a plastic school chair. At first, I just stared. I stood in the doorway and stared. I had a thought that you shouldn't stare at people, but I couldn't turn away. Shoved a bit from behind by other kids trying to get in, I walked in a few steps and looked at the ground, kind of ashamed of myself for staring at all. I wondered if one of the Seattle Sonics was visiting the class for some reason. But the only white guys on the team that were that tall were Jack Sigma and Dennis Autry. This guy wasn't blonde like Sigma, and he wasn't old like Autry, and why would someone like that just be sitting in a desk with a folder and some pens in North Bend, Washington? This was a student. This was somehow a student. The extrovert jocks I talked about earlier started filing in, and I fully expected them to crack up or get on this kid right away, but Eric's size knocked them into silence. They were too confused, too wonderstruck to be smartasses. His height evidently got him off the hook for the ritualized hazing all new kids go through. But it wasn't that they were afraid of him. They were just baffled. For his part, Eric stared down at his desk, drawing something on a piece of paper. My seat was right behind where Eric was sitting, so I went there like everything was normal. Walking by Eric, I noticed that not only was he unusually tall, he also had more hair than I was expecting, and in more places. He had what you'd now call a mullet, but back then we just called it hair because it was pretty common for guys. The top of his hair was kind of pressed down from the mesh baseball cap he'd been wearing, but had now been asked to remove. But that was just the beginning. Personally, I had yet to grow hair in any pubescent locales, but this guy had neck hair, hand hair, the beginnings of a mustache, and arguably a sideburn thing starting up. He might have had arm hair, too, I thought, but his arms were covered up by one of those lined flannel shirts, almost like a jacket. It was blue, and it looked pretty old and worn. Hi, I said as I passed, instantly wishing I had gone with some cooler greeting than that. Eric just kept drawing. Might have been trucks he was drawing, or houses. I couldn't really tell, given how quickly I looked. Mr. Gabriel introduced Eric to the class. Eric Auburn. Mr. Gabriel said it was Eric's first day, told us to not tell Eric how crazy he, Mr. Gabriel, really is. Mr. Gabriel was awesome. He made fun of himself. He invited us to make fun of him and, by extension, ourselves and kind of take the edge off the whole junior high experience. He always used Godzilla as an example in his teaching, whether he was teaching about grammar or the outsiders or poetry. He asked Eric to tell us a little bit about himself so we could all get to know him. Eric smiled a frightened little smile and shook his head just a tiny bit. He didn't want to talk. 
Well, I'll just ask a couple questions then, Mr. Gabriel continued. Where did you move here from? Camus, Eric muttered. Camus is a little town down by Portland, logging town. And what brings you to North Bend? asked Mr. Gabriel, pressing forward. My dad moved here, said Eric, in a voice surprisingly deep. How old are you, like 20? cracked Jeff Rhymes as his buddies busted up laughing, which led to Mr. Gabriel telling them to cool it. We were only a few chapters into The Outsiders as a class, and Eric was handed a book and told to try to catch up over the next few days if possible. Through the rest of that day's class, Eric sat silently, sometimes looking up at the chalkboard full of notes about symbolism or foreshadowing, sometimes just staring at something else in the room, sometimes staring at nothing, maybe even asleep with his eyes open. His notebook was open and he had a pen, but he didn't take any notes. I scooched my desk over to the left a little so I could see the board better, because I was a little short for my age and he was the tallest person I had ever seen. When class was over, Rhymes and his friends came over and asked Eric if he played basketball, but Eric shook his head no. Any sports? Jeff Rhymes asked incredulously. Eric mumbled that no, he doesn't play sports. Rhymes and his friends persisted, inviting Eric to play football with them on the big field after school. It was a daily game, free of supervision, famously rough, and if you wanted to be a respected part of the male social order, you played, and played well. I was not part of this order. Eric neither accepted nor refused their invite, choosing to look down at a piece of paper in his hand and wait for them to go away. Jeff Rhymes did a little fake cough, saying, faggot, in the process, eliciting fake shocked laughter from his friends as they strutted out the door together. I noticed that what Eric was looking at was his schedule, and he was digging out a school map. Where's your next class, man? I asked. Algebra, he said. Room C-32. Pre-algebra, I asked him. The accelerated kids were mostly in pre-algebra. I didn't know any seventh graders in algebra. Algebra, C-32. Thompson is the teacher. Real algebra, wow. Thompson's pretty rad, I said. I got Johnson, and he sucks. The school kind of sucks, but some of it's rad sometimes. Eric looked at me, but he didn't say anything. A lot of cliques, though, jocks and stuff. It's bullshit, I think, but the popular people are, like, cliques. I had never tried to articulate this to a peer before, and had never been given a chance to talk while being listened to by a peer. You'll see at lunch. You can sit with me if you want. That can be rad. I was out of words. Eric started looking up for signs to C-32, presumably having given up on me being helpful. I caught on and pointed him down the hall, told him to take a left and look for the red door. He didn't thank me, he just shuffled off. I picked out an empty table at lunch and waited for him, and after ten minutes it was clear he wasn't coming, and I ditched out myself rather than be spotted eating alone. The movie My Bodyguard had come out that past summer, and I kept thinking about it. How Eric and I could be like what happened in that movie. Chris Makepeace plays this kid who's getting bullied at school by Matt Dillon's character, but then he meets this new kid who's big and strong and quiet, and he hires him as a bodyguard. I wasn't being severely bullied at school, just a little here and there. There were other kids who got it a lot worse than I ever did. I was just sort of unnoticed. 
The undercurrent of my bodyguard, and a not-so-subtle one, is that even though the two boys have set up a business arrangement, they both really want a friend. For the next few weeks, I tried to talk to Eric about stuff, but nothing seemed to catch on. ACDC's album? He didn't know who ACDC was. The Seahawks beating the Oakland Raiders? He just shrugged and turned away. I was trying to draw him out of his shell, but I began to think that maybe there was no shell. Maybe he just wasn't into talking to other people. You hitting the dance on Friday, man? I asked him. He shook his head. No, he was not hitting the dance. Man. And yeah, he rebuffed the basketball coach's repeated invitations to join the team. Mr. Baker promised Eric the starting center job, but Eric didn't even make eye contact with him. Sacagawea Junior High sometimes tried to be progressive, so they encouraged students to come along with their parents for conference night. The idea was to make the kid a partner in education and not just a subject of it. So instead of a PTA, we had a PTSA with students attending meetings. David Smith and Lorraine Cananaline tended to fill these spots. They were selected by the principal because they were studious, quiet, and they seemed comfortable with authority. My parents impressed upon me the importance of not taking conference night too seriously, which I appreciated. My dad would deliver deadpan jokes to the teachers, asking Mr. Gabriel, for instance, why we weren't going to read a tale of three cities, since that would be mathematically better than the Dickens classic. Gabriel loved it. Mom rolled her eyes. I squirmed. He had used the same joke at my sister's conference with Mr. Gabriel two years earlier. Maybe 25% of the kids in the school had parents who actually showed up to parent-teacher conferences. It was not lost on me that my parents could strike up conversations with my peers a thousand times better than I could. I was surprised to see Eric that night at conferences, shambling down the hall. That's Eric, I whispered to my folks. Dad gave me a look like, yeah, I figured that was Eric since Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was not a student at Sacagawea Junior High. I really wanted to see Eric's dad, find out if he was even taller than Eric. Or maybe he wasn't. Maybe Eric's dad would be normal height, which would mean his mom was enormous. My mind raced. I looked in the window of Mr. Thompson's class, and I saw Eric in an engaged, though not overly demonstrative, conversation with the teacher, who was himself probably 6'3 and 260 pounds, but looked like a child next to Eric. They weren't waiting for Eric's dad. Eric had gone solo to his own conferences. I tried to read their lips to see what they were talking about, but I couldn't, because who can ever read lips? Thompson noticed me staring in and motioned for me to come in. Then Eric turned around and saw me as well. Then I ran away and caught up with my parents. When my folks and I got to Gabriel's class, I looked to see when Eric Auburn's appointment was, but I didn't see his name on the sheet. I knew Eric had Miss Price for art, but he wasn't on that sheet either. I told my parents I had to go to the bathroom and ran around checking as many of the sign-up sheets as I could. The only ones with Eric's name were Algebra and Life Sciences. For each of those, he had signed up for three consecutive time slots as winter rolled along. The conferences made me respect Eric and made me even more nervous to talk to him. I was pretty nervous already since he wasn't someone who wanted to talk. I mean, this is the part of the story where I would slowly build his trust. We'd have some cataclysmic event that brought us together. We'd form a close bond that wouldn't need a lot of words. And I wish that was the case. It wasn't. 
The closest I came to that was the handful of times I heard him mumble, Hey, Richie, when we passed in the hallway or something. But then nothing for weeks. And as winter set in and spring started to come around, Eric became even more Eric, the lined flannel he wore even in the winter, eschewing the ski park a fashion standard of our era. That flannel became steadily more faded. His hair got longer, despite a couple of apparently self-inflicted cursory haircuts. Yes, I paid a lot of attention to Eric. And he might have even picked up an inch in height. And he started to smell. Not a lot, but some. Not a little, I should say. Like the room smelled differently when Eric was in the class than when he wasn't. A lot of us were hitting puberty right around then. Well, a lot of them were. I maddeningly had to wait a while. And there were some smells wafting around the campus grounds already. But while a lot of the guys in our grades smelled like socks, especially after a gym class where we did gymnastics, Eric's odor was different. Thicker, but also not as unpleasant as that of the other guys. It's hard to describe, but kind of like an old wet forest that didn't get much fresh air in it. It was a long time ago by now, but I remember that smell emerging over the course of the school year, and it happened gradually enough that no one ever mentioned it, even though we all eventually knew about it. No one gave Eric shit about his smell or about anything. Between his height and his personality, everyone left him alone, which formed a truce that he seemed happy with. I came to tolerate his smell and then ultimately give myself over to it, like the volume at a stadium heavy metal concert. I heard he took a lot of notes in math and science, but I didn't have those classes with Eric, so I don't know if that's true. One day, I think it was early April, because I remember it was right after spring break, I had ridden my bike to school because I missed the bus. At the end of the day, I was riding home and decided to cut through this big dirt lot where they were just starting to build some new houses. There were a bunch of dirt mounds that were fun to jump on my BMX bike. Schwinn Scrambler 3636 was the model red. Every boy I knew had a BMX, the richest kids having the nicest bikes, and the rest of us making do with what we had, plus a series of painstakingly studied magazines. Every boy talked about how he was probably going to start doing races soon, see if he could get a sponsor, maybe even drop out of school. No one entered any races or got sponsors, and those who dropped out of school eventually did not do so to join the BMX circuit. But I dreamed about it too, launching myself off dirt mounds, imagining people being thrilled just to see me on my bike, hanging out with Mike Buff and R.L. Osborne. Reader, I did not become a professional BMX rider. But that day, I got kind of sick of the same dirt mounds and rode to the far end of the lot if there was see if there was anything new to ride on. And as I did, I noticed a familiar, enormous figure walking with long strides down the road, each step covering what would take me two or three. Eric was walking home. Home. He was walking to where he lived, where this elusive dad lived with him. I took off on the bike, intending to catch up with him and walk ride along with Eric because I figured... He'd really open up to me when we were away from school and all those idiots that were at the school. I'm pretty sure I was in love with Eric. In some way. I'm not sure in which way, but in some way. I was maybe 50 yards away when I realized what a terrible idea that actually was. 
He barely talked to me in school. Why would he become my best friend all of a sudden if he thought I was following him, which I was? So I hung back and did a few more jumps, acting like I didn't see him. Watching him from the corner of my eye as his stride seemed to be getting longer, his pace picking up. When Eric turned up one of the old logging roads by the ravine, I made my move, coasting down the main road to just before that turn. I hadn't ever pursued anyone in my life, and the episodes of Starsky and Hutch, I remember, didn't do me much good. As my bike coasted along, my worries picked up. If I went up the road, he'd see me, and given that there wasn't much of anything on that road since the logging company left it, he'd know that I was on his trail. But I didn't want to go home. I couldn't go home. I just I couldn't bring myself to do that, not when I was so close. Here was this amazing person, and there was so much to know about him, and so little that I knew. This treasure of information was right up that road, probably. Eric was smart, super smart, as far as I could tell. And what would he even do if he was mad that I followed him? Would he, as the standard phrasing went, kick the shit out of me? Would I die as a result? Yes. So I waited. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe half an hour. My brain stayed kind of frozen, but eventually my body decided it had had enough and got my feet on the pedals. I rode up the trail, trying to be casual and quiet, my heart racing. I rode as the road got a bit narrower, the muddy potholes a little bigger, the tree cover thicker. I don't know how far, maybe a mile. This was dumb. I was dumb. What was I even doing? I'd ride to that weird-looking tree up there and then turn around and get home as fast as I could. Cool bike, called Eric, in a low, throaty voice, scaring the life out of me. I looked around, and after a second, I spotted him at the end of a short footpath, sloping down from the road and curving into a thicket of trees. He was standing in front of what I guess I'd call a shed, like a tool shed you'd have in the backyard. It was a nice shed, mind you. It looked like it had been freshly painted, and I remember thinking that the roof was amazingly clean, given that the trail, the woods, and the whole town was pretty much covered in pine needles and pine cones. The shed was brown with green trim, which is probably why I hadn't noticed it in the woods. It was a camouflage shed. Eric apparently lived in a camo shed in the woods. Cool bike, Richie, he said again, more directly, sensing that I was dazed. That's a cool bike. Thanks, I said. I tried hard to think of what to say next. Finally, it's a Schwinn, but I want to get a red line or a Haro. Silence. More silence. Do you have a bike, Eric? I cringed as the words escaped my mouth. No, dumbass. No, he doesn't have a bike. What are you doing up here, Richie? he asked. That was the longest sentence he had ever said to me. Seven words. wasn't even close. I was marveling at that, so I didn't really take the beat I should have taken to interpret his tone. I've tried to replay it in my mind a bunch of times since then. You paint memories how you want them to be, of course, and as you get older, you add more and more coats of paint. As I recall it now, what are you doing up here, Richie? Wasn't a threat of violence but it could very well be a promise of violence if things didn't go or did go a certain way. I don't know, and I, I still don't know, and I didn't know then, if he was genuinely asking or if it was his way of saying that I should not be there. 
I've thought about that line so many times and will think about it so many more. I will think of it tonight before bed. Was there fear? What are you doing up here, Richie? Just riding. Just riding around or whatever. Jumps and shit. Great house. It wasn't a great house. It was a shed. But I learned from my mom that when you saw where someone else lived, you should always compliment it. You have a lovely home, she'd say, no matter the state of the place. Cool move, Richie. Emulate your mom. Rad trick on your BMX, Richie, I said to myself. Silently, Eric turned and went back into the shed. He did not close the door behind him. I don't know how long I stood there astride that red BMX bike. I was scared of Eric for sure, but I was more scared of being scared of Eric. I didn't want to live like that. If you run away from things and experiences and people that are different every time, then you're just going to end up around a whole lot of yourself. And I didn't want that. Besides, it's not like I was late to meet the guys. There was no the guys. At least no the guys who saw me as one of the guys. I leaned my bike against one of the smaller pines off the side of the road and walked down the little trail to the shed. I smelled it before I reached the door, that same smell from school, but different too. It was stronger, and it carried other smells with it. It carried the damp wood from the parts of the shed that weren't fiberglass. It carried the tree smell and the wet forest smell that is so omnipresent in North Bend, or was at least before everything finally got clear-cut. Inside, plywood floor, mattress on the floor, clean white sheets on the mattress, sleeping bag, unzipped to be used as a blanket, plastic bags hanging on the wall with fruits and vegetables in them, a small shelf along one wall with coffee cans on it, no labels, holding something other than coffee in it, one kitchen chair, Eric standing against the wall. He wasn't welcoming me in, but he didn't seem hostile either. He just stared at me. I wasn't scared because this seemed like a good place, this shed. Like, not a happy place, but a peaceful one. But what was it? And then I knew. It hit me, and I knew. This wasn't a house where he lived with his dad. This was like a fort that he had. The high school guys down the block had one in the woods by my house. One time they left the padlock off, and I went inside and found some old Hustler magazines. That's what this was. This was great. This wasn't his home. This was his fort. We could hang out. The bed, though. Still, I knew that's what it was. It was a fort. Shit, maybe there were hustlers. Playboys, at least. But the bed. Who built this thing? He just stared. Silence. Followed by, I built it. I put it together. Eric half whispered. He picked up a hammer from the floor. It's all boards and nails. Thompson helped me make drawings with plans. What? Whoa, man, that's so rad. I was genuinely thrilled. I flashed to spending all summer here. You get the stuff from the hardware store and you just make it, he murmured. Something passed his face that was as close to a smile as I'd ever seen. Where's your real house? I asked. And the smile was gone. But I really wanted to know. And we were friends now, I fooled myself into thinking. I mean, you mentioned your dad that one time on your first day. Where's your house with your dad? 
The smile was long gone, but no words showed up from Eric to describe what he was feeling in its absence. His brow went down, and he started to shuffle his weight and look around the fort, cabin, shed, home. Or do you just live here? I laughed. Eric did not laugh. I was a pretty dumb kid, clueless about so much, but I knew this wasn't good. The shuffle turned into pacing, an agitated pace, his annoyance amplified by the fact that given his size and given the size of the building, it was maybe a step and a half before he had to turn. He was going to kick my ass. No, a kid my size or bigger would kick my ass. I, I couldn't fight and I was sure everyone either knew or sensed that. This was going to be worse. Eric was huge, and I didn't know anything about him. I wanted to know him so badly that I acted like I did, but this ruse was backfiring in a major way. He could kill me. He could kill me and leave me in these woods, and I would be one of those missing kids like on TV. Pace, pace, pace. Glare, pace, pace, pace. Forget it, man. I sputtered. Never mind about the house. None of my beeswax. Beeswax? And he stopped. I couldn't see through the tears of fear welling up in my eyes whether there were tears welling up in his eyes. I'm sorry, I whispered. Eric reached his arm back and threw. The hammer in his hand flew right past me before I even knew what was happening, hitting the wall with a wet smash, punching a hole in what it had finally dawned on me was, yes, his home. It would be a long time before I pieced it together that if he wanted to hit me with the hammer, I was close enough in that tiny shed that he could. Or he could have simply hit me with it. Didn't even have to throw it. All I knew in the moment was that Eric threw a fucking hammer at me, and I almost died. Then he yelled, Get out of here, Richie. Get out of here, Richie. Get out of here, Richie. Okay, sorry, I yelled back, scrambling for the door. You're a liar, Richie. Get out of here. Okay. I was already walking up the little path to the road. I was going to live, obviously, I'm writing this, but and probably not get beaten up either. But what is that he said? What do you mean I'm a liar? Get out of here, Richie. I picked up my bike and got on. You already said that. You chased me here. You followed me. You weren't just riding your bike. You hunted me. As his anger got sharper and calmer, mine grew. I had waited a long time to have the kind of experience I had finally had with Eric, and I was furious that someone stepped in to ruin it, especially because that someone was Eric. You're lucky that I followed you, Eric, I screamed, voice cracking. You're such a weirdo that I was the only one who would be your friend. Everyone else thinks you're a freak, a gay freak. Go home, he spoke blankly. He was totally calm now. Fine, and I took off. I stopped and looked back on my bike about 50 feet up the road to see what Eric was doing. I saw him walking through the woods, past his shed, back where the trees and brush got super thick the way they do in the few undeveloped parts of Washington. Washington has a rainforest just across the sound. I could see Eric's greenish sweatshirt, his faded brown work pants, and his sandy brown hair for a while. 
Then I saw trees and bushes and Eric. And then I just saw the forest. I was almost to the end of the logging road when my bike hit a pothole with a big rock at the end of it, the kind of pothole I would normally steer around if I was paying attention. My front wheel stopped against the rock, but the rest of the bike, with me on it, continued forward, up, and to the side until it was horizontal enough for me to fall off. I landed on the gravelly dirt and skidded a few feet. It hurt worse than anything I could remember, and it felt worse than any bike crack-up I had had to that point. I stood up slowly and saw my right arm and my right leg were all scraped up, but still covered in dusty dirt. Everything was brown with flecks and strips of red beginning to emerge beneath it. I stayed calm. It made more sense than any wipeout I had ever had. Climbing back on the bike, every part of me hurt, and I was glad I could coast most of the way back to my house. No further jumps. When I got home, I could see by the cars that there was no one else there. I put my bike in the garage and ran a bath. I sat there for I don't know how long. I just stared at the tiles. Finally, I heard the door open. Hello, my dad called. Richie? Bathroom, I called back, sleepily. Did I fall asleep in that bath? I honestly don't know. You okay, buddy? asked dad. I told him, yeah, I just felt like taking a bath. It's worth noting that I had been a showers-only kid since third grade, but Dad did not pry. After the bath, I put on a long-sleeve shirt and long pants so no one would ask about my wipeout, and I went to bed early. I woke up the next morning full of dread for the school day, scared to see Eric, and mad at him too, and just so many things. My mom didn't believe my half-hearted complaint about a stomachache, but offered to give me a ride in at least. We rode in silence. Drop-off happened without a word, a sort of rehearsal for the teen sullenness that was to come. I intended to keep this approach into first period with Mr. Gabriel regardless of what Eric did or said. Hell, I could keep this disposition going all day. Maybe it could become permanent, I thought, and I could just be that sullen guy who doesn't have to talk to anyone but is definitely not a dork, and who everyone knows is a real deep thinker. Eric wasn't in his seat when I got to class. Mr. Gabriel wasn't either. Some guy was at his desk, a sub. This was pretty strange because Gabriel never missed class. He got terrible migraines, but he had learned how to control them when he felt them coming on. He kept a sandwich on hand, and if he ate it really fast and then sat in the dark supply closet for 20 minutes, he'd be able to keep going. During that time, we were supposed to read quietly to ourselves, and because we loved Mr. Gabriel, that's more or less what we did. So to not see him this day made me worried that the cure no longer worked or that something worse had happened. The bell rang and no Eric. The sub called Roll and right after Chad Abbott, he called Eric Auburn. No Eric, he asked, and then moved on. No Eric. No Eric, no Mr. Gabriel, just sullen Richie and the various social factions. I felt a little dizzy going to my next class, and by third hour I felt a weird tightness around my body. At lunch that day I went to the office with the full intent of saying I was sick and I needed to go home, and it was more or less true, although today I would describe my symptoms as more like acute anxiety, maybe a low-grade panic attack. But when it came time to tell the secretary I was sick, the words came out as, Can you tell me where Mr. Gabriel is today? She wanted to know why I was asking. I had no response. 
I apologized and shuffled out the door. He's at a conference, she called, as I was almost gone. It's like a teacher training thing. He'll be back tomorrow, Richie. Her voice was sweet. Patronizing, but sweet. I was relieved. I skipped the cafeteria, instead opting for a bag of Funyuns from the vending machine for lunch, because by this point I was crying, and I had this thing where if I started crying, I couldn't really stop for at least 15 minutes. So time alone, Funyuns, some brown paper towels from the bathroom, and I would be somewhat okay for history class. When I got home from school, I got my bike out of the garage and thought maybe I'd go by Eric's, not stop, just go by. But just the thought of it made my heart race. So instead, I did this thing I would do sometimes where I'd ride super fast down the little hill in our backyard and then jump off the bike just before it hit our big Douglas fir tree. I'd have a roll in the grass like a stuntman and the bike would bounce harmlessly off the tree. Ride, 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 jump, tumble. So that day I did it. Then I did it again. Ride, ride, ride. Jump, harder tumble. Maybe ten times in a row. Which would be a record by seven for most times I tried this. Even though my body was pretty elastic back then, it did start to hurt. Finally, I rode my bike just as fast. Straight for the tree like always. I let go of the handlebars as I always did. And this time I stayed on. As I prepared for the jolt, I tilted my torso just slightly to the left. The hit came with tremendous violence as my stomach hit the handlebars and my body rolled across them like some demented gymnastics routine. I went upside down. The tilt was enough to avoid hitting the tree directly along my spine, and instead I scraped along the side, the bark stripping off a bit, but still carving into my back, my ass, my legs. I landed pretty close to the tree maybe a couple feet away, and I hit my head on one of the many small rocks scattered about that part of the yard, the detritus of some long-abandoned home landscaping project. I lied there on the ground, intense pain all over, and I looked up at the sky, at the trees, at the clouds, so much goddamn pain, but I didn't cry or swear or even do anything about it. And then I got up. I rolled the bike back into the garage and went in to watch TV. When the bruise on my forehead from the rock inevitably formed later that night, I told my mom that I had wiped out on my bike, which was true. I just left out the rest of it. Next day, Mr. Gabriel was back, but as I noticed once class had started, again, no Eric. Have you heard from Eric? Mr. Gabriel asked me. I don't know how many heads in the class turned to look at me, turning to try to suss out my relationship with him, ready to pounce felt like everyone was looking at me. In hindsight, it's just as possible no one was looking at me. I shook my head, no, but I didn't say anything. The day after was a Thursday, nothing. Friday, nothing. The weekend came and we went up to my grandma's house in Bellingham on Saturday morning, not getting back until Sunday at dinner time. Then it was dinner, some homework, and bed. Monday was the one-week anniversary of my encounter with Eric at his place. No Eric in first period. After class, I asked Mr. Gabriel if Eric was still even in the class. He said he didn't know because he hadn't been told anything one way or the other. By the end of that week, his name wasn't being called in class anymore. I couldn't ask anyone about him because he didn't have any other friends. Or any friends. 
Um, I was wondering if you can tell me if Eric Auburn goes to school here anymore. I mumbled to the secretary. There's Richie again, I'm sure she thought, checking up on everyone's welfare. She gave me a smile, though. There's only so much information I can give you about him, hon, she said. I can tell you that he has not been deleted from our school enrollment, but the district has him currently marked as inactive. Sometimes they go out and do a home visit in situations like this, and then they report back with either a final status of active or a final status of inactive. They went to his house? I didn't say that, on. I'm just saying that they sometimes do that and that Eric is listed as inactive. Saturday morning, I got my bike out and rode slowly but surely down the logging road. I turned up it and made sure to stare straight ahead as if I was just out for a ride because, hey, this is my town too and Eric didn't own the road. The logging company probably still did. I was looking for the shed, and I saw it. The roof was tilted down sharply on the corner furthest from me, and I could see a bunch of stuff outside. Papers, it looked like, all wet from the rain. The coffee cans I remembered from inside, knocked over, sitting in the dirt. I walked toward the shed and noticed that behind the shed was the mattress that had been on the floor and was now wedged between two skinny trees. The sheets were muddied and half torn off, and there were big slashes in the mattress. When I got to the tilted-down corner of the shed, I could see why it was tilted. The walls had been broken, beaten in or caved in at the top on both corners that were holding that part of the roof up. I was all the way around now and could see into the shed from the outside. The door was hanging open. I looked in there, saw no one. Someone had trashed this place, though. Someone intentionally tried to destroy it, but gave up after merely ruining it. Well, I don't think I'll be seeing Eric in class, I thought. And I didn't. Seventh grade ended. It must have, I guess, even though I don't remember anything more about that year. Eighth grade was a little bit easier, and I got invited to play Dungeons and Dragons with this group of nerds. I sat with them at lunch, and we'd all get out monster manuals and go through them. For some reason, and I've never heard of any other district doing this, we had ninth grade as part of junior high. It still counted on our high school transcript, but it wasn't at the high school. Ninth grade saw the arrival of a crude and poorly stocked computer lab. And I liked the possibility and the solitude it offered. I spent as much time there as I could. Computer work took me through high school as the nerd group served as a social safe space, a group I could belong to that didn't require to me that didn't require me to be very cool or good-looking or popular. Through it all, I barely talked about Eric, really only speaking up when someone else brought up the subject of the seven-foot-tall seventh grader who never talked to anyone. I remember Eric, I would offer. He was a really cool guy if you took the time to talk to him. I talked to him a couple times. Then I changed the subject. I lost touch with my friends pretty soon after high school. Some of them went to college out of state. One joined the Army. College, for me, at a state school, was more or less the same cycle of nerds and computers that high school had been. New place, new nerds, same Richie. Then I got a job in tech that more or less demanded that I work at least 60 hours a week. I could do the work. I was good at it. And took up, it took up enough of my brain to keep me busy. It also meant I was alone at my desk for most of the day, pounding out code, testing it, redoing it, on and on. 
I was already pretty okay at being alone, and I sort of made it into my profession. When work was done, I'd go home, play some video games, multiplayer online sometimes, but not exactly a social life. I'd watch some TV, I'd sleep a few hours, then I'd go back to work. And years went by like that. I looked up one day and I realized two things. One, I was 30. And two, Eric had been the last and only remarkable thing that had happened in my life. It was around this time that all the sightings started happening down by Mount St. Helens. If you didn't live in the Pacific Northwest around that time, it might not have been as big a deal, but out here it was all anyone could talk about. There were all these videos shot by hikers of this huge creature walking through the woods, pictures that show the same creature behind some rock formations. And this thing didn't look like that old classic Bigfoot film of a creature striding through the woods. That one was probably a costume, given that you can see a seam along the back. No, these new sightings showed something with much lighter coloring, like a rust color, and hairy, but not like a thick coat of hair. None of the photos were conclusive, but nearly everyone agreed that either this was the most elaborate con ever or something was out there. Because of the persistence of the Bigfoot legend in both tabloid and Native American culture, that something was then called Bigfoot. Because we were in the Northwest and home to a particular strain of crazy, the woods were soon crawling with gun nuts hoping to kill Bigfoot and environmentalists trying to stop them. News crews from Portland and Seattle were there to cover it all, but the more people converged on the area, the fewer new videos and photos emerged until finally the only ones were obviously concocted by people with too much time on their hands. Me, I didn't go out there. I started watching the videos more closely, slowing them down frame by frame, sometimes at home, but more often at work on the much better computers. Since I lived alone and didn't have anyone at home waiting for me, I was free to stay at work for hours watching all this video, blowing up pictures, looking at high-resolution detailed maps. I printed out a large map and pinned it to my cubicle wall, adding pins that indicated where and when a given photo or video was taken. I tried to trace movement and predict it. Sometimes I'd look up at the clock and it would be two or three in the morning. I'd slam some caffeine and just make it an all-nighter before work the next day. It was like this ultra-souped-up Where's Waldo game for me, looking for where this thing, guy, entity was and where it, he, it might be. In all this work, I concluded that whatever it was, it didn't look like the Eric I knew or didn't really know back in seventh grade. Of course, I didn't look like the Richie from back then either, what with my receding hairline and glasses. Still, I felt that this thing, this distant brown thing, was Eric-like, Eric-esque. Okay, fine, I, I felt that it was probably Eric. I was seeing Eric, the person that had disappeared into the woods, that I had not understood, that had meant everything to me. The person who I wasn't even certain after all these years was even real. Like, how could I have gone to school briefly with a seven-foot seventh grader who lived in a shed alone and then disappeared and then became Bigfoot? It was crazy. But it wasn't completely crazy. 
Camas, his hometown, before coming briefly to North Bend, was only about 60 miles from St. Helens. And all I really knew about Eric in the end is that he was huge, rust-colored, allegedly from Camas, and had disappeared into the woods. And that he was something extraordinary and beyond human. Maybe he'd never been human at all. Or all the way human. Anyway, my whole life became a conversation in my head about Eric. And then I knew what I had to do. And so I started shopping for a bike. A very particular bike. It's not easy to find a Schwinn Scrambler 3636 for sale online, and it's even harder to find one in red, in the original paint job from the factory. The myth is that you can find anything you want to buy online, but the reality is trickier. I'd find blue ones, I'd find ones with the plastic mag wheels, but I needed the regular spokes. I needed a bike precisely like the one I rode by Eric's shed that day, that I rode to Eric's shed that day. I needed the one that I ditched on the side of the road when I went into his shed. I needed the bike I got back on when I saw him run past his shed. I needed the one that I ran into a tree at home. My mom had donated mine to Goodwill at some point when I was in high school. Finally, after way longer than I expected, a listing on eBay bore fruit. And $500 plus shipping later, I was reunited with a duplicate of my boyhood wheels. It arrived in a huge box at work, and I was so geeked out excited. Being a software engineer, people expect that behavior from people like me anyway, so that was okay. The next day, I put the bike in the back of my car along with an iPad and a pretty absurd number of printed-out maps and headed south on I-5, took an exit near Woodland, Washington, an exit in town I've never even thought of, and proceeded past more hitherto unknown-to-me towns, such as Hayes, Amboy, and Chalachi. I then proceeded to get lost at least three times. The thing about getting lost in that part of the wilderness is that you can go down a road for quite a while before realizing that it's the wrong road entirely. And then it's easy to make a wrong turn when you're trying to get back. And it takes some time. Finally, after a long, narrow road that increased in elevation as I went along, I reached the Susan Creek Trailhead. Even now, you notice a, a fine layer of gray volcanic ash left over from the 1980 eruption all over everything. There's really been nothing to push it away, and there's so much of it. Then the hike. The trail snakes its way up along Susan Creek until it meets Chinook Creek and finally an old forest road, steadily climbing the whole way. The road had been used to reach a fire lookout at Susan Peak, but after the lookout was torn down in favor of aerial fire spotting, the forest went about reclaiming the road. All of this would have made for a difficult hike, for an out-of-shape software engineer anyway, and lugging the bike all the way up there made it harder still. I couldn't ride the bike because it was way too small, nubby BMX tires notwithstanding, and the climb was way too steep and I was too large. No other hikers were on hand to see me on this mission, since it was early October and it was a Tuesday afternoon. Susan Peak was the highest point in the larger area that I had circled on the map. There had been no sightings, or at least no photographic evidence from anyone on this trail, but there had been there had been from spots very near it. Bigfoot, I reasoned, would likely stay away from places he had already been spotted, which left this area of approximately four square miles as the place he was most likely to go. 
So it's either that or begin a long trek up to the North Cascades where he could be left alone. Susan Creek also happened to be roughly equidistant between Camas, Washington, and Mount St. Helens. I didn't know if that fact was relevant, but I didn't know that it wasn't. Do you know that when you're carrying a heavy, to you, backpack full of supplies that you bought new at REI, and you're pushing a clone of your boyhood bike up a steep and semi-overgrown trail, and you slip on a rock that becomes dislodged, and your feet give out, and you skid down the embankment, and you hit your shoulder on a tree and bang up your knee and shin, that it hurts? Well, now you know. It's also no fun to then have to wade through thick vegetation to retrieve the bike that had rolled away in the process. This is valuable information, I know. The trail got steeper and my knees were sore. Every step I took, I would, I knew I would make them more sore. I wanted nothing more than to throw the damn bike over the edge of the trail, throw my brand new pack after it, and slink back to my car. I sang songs in my head instead to throw my brain off the track. Leonard Skinner, David Bowie, Fleetwood Mac, anything I could think of from the classic rock station they sometimes had on at work. Stop, my brain insisted. Stop, stop, stop. Sometimes my brain even inserted stop into the lyrics that I was trying to think of instead. This is ground control to major stop. I'm stepping through the stop. So I sang out loud, switching to something louder and heavier, more brain-proof. Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Early Def Leppard, Rat. I was belting out priests breaking the law at full volume when my knee buckled and I fell, scraping up my right leg and hitting my shoulder hard on a tree root. And this helped. I used this anger and this pain and this frustration and this bitterness to make the final push-up Susan Peak to the summit. And by this point, it was getting toward dusk, but I was there with the bike. I put the kickstand down and threw my pack to the ground, my back dripping with sweat from carrying the thing. Hello, I yelled out. Hello. No answer. This is Richie Gifford. Nothing. I continued in a loud voice, way above my speaking volume, but somewhere south of a shout. Eric, it's Richie. From Sacagawea in the seventh grade. From North Bend. I don't know what brought you to North Bend back then. I think you weren't in a good place. I didn't understand you, and I didn't know how to help you. I wanted to help you, I think, but I I just didn't, Eric. You were trying to do something, and I made it harder for you, and maybe I made you give up. I took a quick water break. I had felt self-conscious at first, but now I was fine, and the words flowed. Talking to him, or the idea of him, or the idea of us. I'm not sure what you ever were or what you are now. A huge guy got left alone? I do not know what you were going through or why you said you had a dad or if you did have a dad. I bet people thought that because you were so tall that you were a grown-up and you could take care of yourself, and I don't think you could because you were probably just a weird kid like me. That was pretty messed up when you threw a hammer at me, by the way, or near me or whatever, but that's okay. You didn't hit me, and it's okay. It's, it's okay, 
I wish that our school or our town or me, I wish, I wish we had given you what you needed. Water. And with no idea if I was talking to trees or rocks or Eric the Bigfoot by that point, I pressed on. Or are you, were you a, a different species altogether all along? I see the Bigfoot pictures and I think it looks like you, Eric. And a lot of people say there's no Bigfoot, but I've always been of the mind that there could be. Native Americans have talked about it for centuries, and there are woods in Washington that no one ever, ever, ever goes in, and anything could be in there. And yeah, you know what? I, I think it's true. I think Eric Auburn, briefly a seventh grade classmate of mine, is Bigfoot, or a Bigfoot. And to you, Eric, I say that I am sorry for making you mad. And I hope you'll hear this and forgive me. And also to you, Eric, I say thank you. And I don't want to take this bike down the trail again. I'd like you to have it. And this was a lot more poetic when I thought it up because now I don't know what you'd do with the bike, but I'm giving it to you because it was important to me when we were friends. And we were friends. You were a friend, Eric even though I didn't know you, even though you threw a hammer at me. Okay, that's all. It was night now, and way too dark to get back down that trail where the bike was. That's why I brought the sleeping bag, which I enrolled for the first time. I found a clear, flat space not far from the trail, and I stretched it out. I lied still, looking at the stars, listening for something. Some small sounds. Mice? Wind? Something that sounded like a footstep a long way off, but only one footstep, so maybe not a footstep at all. So many stars you can see from there. I fell asleep. My watch said 7.15 when I woke up the next morning and the sun was out. I hadn't been mauled by bears or Bigfoots, big feet. The bike was not on the trail where I had parked it the night before. I looked around, not in the bushes or anything. Hadn't blown over. I looked up and down the trail. Maybe some kids had been on the trail overnight. I stood on the spot where the Schwinn had been and looked around. Nothing. No wind. Maybe I hadn't put the kickstand down the right way and the ground was loose and it rolled away. I didn't hear anything like that, but I slept pretty hard after all. And someone said, cool bike. It was probably me in my own head. It sounded far away, but it was probably me. I walked back down to the car. The trail I had to travel was a lot easier without that bike. John Motini Podcast. My friend Eric from junior high.